Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interviewed David Hanson from Wheelbike, based in Seattle. I've known David since the early days of micromobility industries, and indeed, Wheel was one of the companies that the micromobility VCs invested in back in 2019 when we were running it. So, full disclosure, I do have some skin in the game with this conversation. I love what they are doing, though, and they have really taken to heart what Horace and I talked about early on in the podcast with the concept of what a smartphone on wheels would look like, rather than a bike with phone books stuck on. With a company about to ship bikes in Q1 next year, I wanted to bring David on to discuss their product, but also their philosophy and what makes their vehicle different to any other bikes in the space. It is a bold strategy as to what they're doing at wheel, but I'm excited to see what conversations it'll provoke about what a bike is or should be. Also, if you haven't already, please be sure to check out our Rider Choice Awards, the Oscars of the Micromobility World. Voting is now open ahead of the Micromobility World Conference that we're having online on the 19th of January. We have just shifted to final rounds for many of the categories, and we're excited to see which brands are considered the most popular, whether it's your favorite scooter, e-bike, shared service, or more. With tens of thousands of votes already in, be sure to not miss out. Check it out at micromobility.io. And with that, here is David. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, David Hanson from Wheel. How are you going, David? Doing good. Awesome. Kia ora, bro. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a crazy story, but like when I first met David, I was, uh, you know, we, we started chatting and he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm actually from Northland, which is a place up in the North Island of New Zealand. And you are, there's like a little, there's very, there's very few people in New Zealand who are a micro, man. So yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. It's really cool. So what, like, let's start here. How did you, how did you go from New Zealand to right before you started wheel? How did, like, what's that part of the story? Well, so I was I was born in the U.S., but uh, my mother she's from New Zealand, she's native, and then in the '90s we spent a few years there. It sort of leads me on to where we get to e-bikes because that's where I started building robots. So if you ever went to Surplus Tronics in downtown Auckland, anyway, the I did not, but that sounds cool. <laughs> oh, you didn't. Started building robots pre Google times when I was just a precocious kid. Uh, yeah, ended ended up back in the U.S. and then. Subsequently, led to working on e-bikes later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you went off. You went off and studied physics. Right, right. So, uh, actually, before doing physics, I was just sort of a bike bum. I was always into bicycles. Went back to school, studied physics, uh, got into startups, then, and then eventually got back into hardware. Uh, robots came later with working on e-bikes and sort of merging those two together. Mm. So, I'd love to hear the story of what. The reason I'm so excited to interview you is because wheel is a totally mad idea, right? It's the, like the crazy idea of like, what happens if you say the bike is actually not a bike. It's a robot that we ride on that looks like a bike and performs like a bike, but actually you start from the place of like, it's a robot and right. nobody I think has sort of flipped it quite like that. Like you were the, you were the, certainly the first that I first came when I first came across you guys in, in uh, 2019 that were thinking like that. I think maybe there's a few people who are starting to think like that now, but it, yeah. it feels like it's a profound shift for folks who have like seen the bike and checked it out. And I will link to the show notes in, in, in the show notes as well, because David did a presentation at Micromobility America where he announced the bike and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, what have you got? What have you guys built? Like, what have you got to with um, with a bike that's fully software defined? Yeah, so so we all were building an electric bike, where every meaningful feature uh, with the bike is defined in software. And so, what that means, it's probably best to take a look at existing e bikes, which are close relatives to bicycles for the past hundred years. Yeah, where you take a bicycle. You take a pretty standard drivetrain, you hook a battery and a motor to it, maybe a throttle. And that's sort of been the state of e-bikes the last 10 years. And so what we've done differently is taking the idea of the bike and everything that happens with it and splitting into inputs and outputs. So when you ride the bike, you're telling it what you want it to do. That gets relayed through, or through sensors that gets relayed to our computer. 
on the bike. And then what the bike does is actually decided by there. And to do that, we have motors in each wheel, a motor in the steering, and then you're actually pedaling to a generator. So if you take the idea of software defined and sort of go to its logical end, that's what we've built. Mm -hmm. The thing that kind of struck me about the bike, and I I will put up a picture of the bike when we, when, when I publish this and this sort of stuff, but I really recommend you go check it out. Wheel.bike. So W E E L dot bike forward slash beta is the, is, is that it was a, it's a totally clean design. Like it's an insanely clean design because you don't have any wires or components. It's literally like what you would think of if someone, if like a kid designed a bike, you know, <laughs> like yeah. a kid drew a bike. Okay. It's got two wheels. It's got a frame <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Like there's no, there's no wires, there's no brakes, there's no anything because everything is run by motors. Like it's a solid state bike. Right. And this, that's the sense that I got and, and having a chance to like, you know, check it out and, and see it. Um, when I was in San Francisco, I was struck by that. It only has one brake pedal or like a brake, brake lever. Right. And even that is yep. fixed. It's not even like a, I think. Yeah. So when you look at the bike, our design evolved over time to where we wanted to boil down what the bike looked like to being only the essence of a bike. It actually, it, it, it sort of goes right in between what you imagine an electric motorcycle, an electric bike would be. Mm-hmm. And we were pretty intentional with that. We wanted it to still retain some sort of bikeness about it, but you're right. We deleted almost everything from it. it it's sort of the if the iPhone is just a glass rectangle, this is what we did to a bike. Yes. So every wire, every cable, anything that was jutting out for the side, we removed that. And it ended up being a pretty smart move because what happens with our bike is so different to anything that came before it that it's a good way to frame it for people as being something totally new. So it's familiar, but you know, it, in person, it looks very much like a rendered bike like you're saying, out of a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the part that really struck me. So talk me through what that enables. Like if you have a bike that's got no brakes, but it has motors that you can run in forward and reverse and it runs into it, and you've got a generator, so you have no chain, uh, you have no gears, you have nothing. Like you're pedaling into a generator. Yeah. It steers itself if it wants to. Like what can you do with that? Right. So what we're doing is basically taking most of the skill that's required to ride a bike and make it so that it's something that's optional. So when you hit the throttle on our bike, like other e-bikes, it's just sending a signal to go to the motors or to the motor to send you forward. With us, since we have a motor actually in each wheel, when you hit the throttle, we look at everything that's going on with the bike, the, the pose of it, the steepness of the road, whether your hands are on the handlebars, whether you're sitting in the seat, or not. Mm -hmm. And we decide exactly where to uh, apply power. This is all just the sort of stuff that comes from the EV and automotive industry, where you, instead of having mechanical linkages uh, between an engine and your actual foot, you're you're using sensors. Well, so my sense is that the bike is for folks who, I mean, I remember because we, when I first invested with you guys, I mean, the, 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 <laughs> the thesis was we will have a bike that rides itself to someone because that was a, and that was like the, that was the theory, right? That you would have a bike, it would ride itself to you and you'd hop on it and you'd ride it yourself. And then it would be a standard e-bike that you would get to ride around a city, but then you'd like, you'd hop off it and it would return itself back. And so it was, it would, it was going to be on a shared system and that's how that was going to run. But you kept on telling me every time you'd put someone on it to show them how the tech worked. Everyone would just go, well, this actually feels like an amazing e-bike. Can I buy one? Yeah. Yeah. The demos we had done previously when we built the riderless, self-balancing, autonomous bike, they were amazing and everybody liked filming them. And then at the end of any demo, the question was, "Where? which bike should I get? Can I buy this bike? <laughs> and so eventually we realized we had a market right in front of us. Yeah. And so all of the technology we had built in making the bike software defined, we started to realize that this all applied when a rider was on board. Mm. So when you start and stop and turn. So in, in giving demos, we found out a lot of people are not great at riding bikes, don't ride regularly, haven't ridden since they were a kid. And so we we ended up finding out what people were afraid of with bikes. Mm. And usually that has to do with starting, stopping and turning. So stopping is probably the most common one. Everyone's afraid of going over the handlebars. Yes. Everyone that I know that rides a lot has at some point gone over the handlebars on their bike. So what our bike does, what the wheel bike does is it looks at what you're trying to do 
and then decides how to do that. So when someone grabs the brake on a bike, they mean slow down. Mm. If they're skilled, they know that you shouldn't brake too hard into a corner. If there are wet leaves, you shouldn't brake too hard. They know how to split the brake balance between the front and rear. Mm. That's something that is com- completely done in software now. Now it's it becomes a software feature. So our bike has anti-tip, uh, so you can't go over the handlebars. It has anti-lock braking. It has uh, stability control. And then so all the features were sort of built off of the fact that we control everything on the bike in software, including the steering. Hmm. The steering is where, where it gets fun. Yeah, yeah. So talk me through the steering because you've sent me videos of, of people riding along in bike lanes that, or in, in, in lanes that the bike is, and they're riding with no hands and the bike is just riding along with them. Yeah, so the steering started off with the autonomy part of how do you make a bike balance and get around. What we realized in working on it was that we had built power steering into a bike. And so if, if you ride motorcycles, this is sort of similar to where you would see a braking damper mm-hmm. or sorry, steering damper on, on the steering. And so we started, instead of thinking of it as how does it work with the no one on the bike, we started thinking of what type of automotive type features could we bring over onto a, onto a bike. And so stability was the first thing that we worked on. And then we realized the bike could actually ride with you. So for example, the sensor package on the bike allows you to, to, to detect that you're in a bike lane and lane assist is now a feature that we have on the bike. And what's cool about lane assist is it works whether your hands are on the handlebars or not. Mm. So explain to, cause that sounds mad, right? <laughs> explain to me what that, <laughs> what that looks and feels like for someone who's on a bike. So, so riding no hands, it, it, it is a bit mad, but it's something that as a feature, it's something that people who ride a lot really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. So if you go to any bike trail and there's a long straightaway and you sit there for a few minutes, you'll see people riding by no hands. It sort of feels like you're flying along. It, it, it reminds me of, it actually reminds me of riding a boosted board, which is how I got, how really how I got into riding or uh, working on electric bikes. It's uh, where you're, you suddenly sit up and you look around and you're able to enjoy the scenery around you. We see this through the lens of someone who is not an expert rider. They're coming from the car world Mm. and the the features that we're trying to put on the bikes are features that are familiar to someone from the car world. So what's happened with me riding uh, one of our bikes is that I use the hands-free all the time, even though I can ride Mm hands-free. And that's so I can do other things. No, I mean, I totally get it, which is that I I ride, you know, it's like I go to the exercise, I go to the gym and I I hop on the exercise bike and I like being on the exercise bike because I can just run my legs and then I can do stuff on my phone if I need to. So I'm doing stuff, you know, while moving. It is one of these things of like, I've always, so I've had a, anybody who's listened to the show for a while will know that I've had like a, a bit of a interest I love the idea of autonomy and micro. And the reason I love it is because there's a whole bunch of reasons, right? Which is like from a regulatory perspective, I think it's just like a way, way open, way wider and open conversation around what's available. Um, you don't have any of the regulatory stuff that you would have for having a, like a larger vehicle, especially on major roads. You can kind of experiment with lots of different things. And then it's a cost thing, right? The part that really struck me about the early versions of your bike, when you're looking at doing relocations and all that sort of stuff, and I acknowledge you're not doing that now, but you know the part I think the point still stands is that your bill of materials for the entirety of your autonomy piece, which included the cameras and the lidar and the the processing and all that sort of stuff, was like three grand. Versus like if you put it on a car, it's a hundred grand with the lidars and it's you know right the, 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 just like a heap of other computation that's required, all that sort of thing. The part that kind of gets me is like the the nobody's ever tried to put all this stuff really on a bike before. And your other point as well that I think is really interesting and, and people don't necessarily fully grok until you see it, but the bike is riding itself without, you know, it's, it's taking a human input for sure, but it's like that dance of like the bike is actually riding itself. And it's because it's got the steering column, the motor and the steering column and the motors and the wheels, right? So you can make a bike do all that. You can make it ride around like a standard bike would if you had a person on it and you can make it do it by itself, which means that you've kind of nailed all of the stuff around like, what does a riding dynamic look like? Which is, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who have tried to build that two wheeled balancing thing 
and there aren't that many people who have managed to nail it. Like, yeah, the only other party that I know is doing this is Lit Motors, and they're doing it with gyroscopes. Right. If you go back and look at why we chose two wheels, because two wheels sound, sounds pretty crazy, and it is, is when we were looking originally at how do you make an autonomous vehicle go around a city. Yeah. We looked at the sidewalk and we looked at the road and we said, well, those are both pretty hard. Yeah. The sidewalk seems easy, but sidewalks are unpredictable. There are no rules. People don't walk on on any side of that. And so when we looked at the bike lane, we said, this is perfect. There are a bunch of rules. There aren't cars in the bike lane. What can we do here? And so we looked at using three wheels or something other than two wheels. And what we found out is that the a bike, a, a bicycle with a one wheel in front of the other is a beautifully simple way to get around a city because it has no limitations as it goes around. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of two wheels we were stuck on because we said to ourselves, if we could master balancing on two wheels, we can navigate around almost any city without modifying the infrastructure, without requiring a bike lane to be wide enough. And so what ended up happening was that in order to make this bike work for a rider on board, we had to get really, really good at the human machine interface Mm -hmm. of all of this. Mm -hmm. And so knowing the dynamics of a bike as well as we do is what allowed us to do that. And so the, the design of it evolved over time where basically we, so we didn't set out to create a software defined bike. We ended up with one Yes, (laughs) because what, what happens is when you take a regular bicycle and you try and make it balanced by itself, or with the person on board, you end up breaking a lot of stuff. You end up adding a bunch of motors to brake levers and you end up modifying existing motors. And so what, where we ended up with the current design of the bike was in completely rethinking what was used. And so our bike as it sits has no Shimano parts, no SRAM parts. It actually, other than the wheels that are on there, there are no bike parts at all on the bike. Yeah. That makes it very interesting. So the last interview that I did was with Josh Hon from Turn, and Josh was mm. talking about how Bosch, uh, you know, has got into the e-bike game, and they're very, from a componentry perspective, like they are the best players in the game. They've been around for like a really long time, and they're they're a big player in the micro mobility space, and they have obviously a lot of components. But I asked him why that was, and he said, "Look, you just at the end of the day, when you're building a bike, trying to build your own stack," as as he put it. He's like, it's very hard. Right. And yet you guys have managed to do it. And I'm kind of curious as to what that, where that leaves you, because you don't, you're not reliant on the Magura or Shimano or, you know, any of these others to be able to provide you with bike parts, which is where I think there's been challenges, especially in supply chain. But like, are you pulling from where the the automotive supply chain or where are these, where are these parts coming from? Well, it's interesting. So if you define the features of a bike in software and you try and push that as hard as you can, you actually end up with mechanicals, which are much simpler than on a bike. Mm. So the number of moving parts on our bike, you have two wheels, which are direct drive motors. You have a set of pedals and then you have the steering between all of those. There are no belts, no chains, no gears. It's all just wiring. And well, it's printed circuit boards and ribbon cables going between there. So, What's interesting, if if you look into our bike, it looks a lot more like a smartphone. Mm. It's sort of in a triangle where we have tried to reduce complexity at every spot possible. One of the side benefits of this is uh, is increase in reliability due to lack of need for maintenance. Yes, that's that's we ended up with that from coming from previous versions of the bike simply because we broke them all the time. So we ended up removing parts that we didn't need until we'd sort of boiled it down to the most basic components needed on a bike. Yeah, yeah, totally. What, well, I guess the question I have is what, what does that enable? Like, so you can remove all the parts and you get something done that's super simple and reliable. Do you think that that's sort of like an, is that a material problem? Like, is that something that a lot of people complain about when you've been talking, when you've been thinking through that bike, right? And going, and I own one. So I own an e-bike that I use for commuting. And then I also use another e-bike that I have for, for mountain biking. And they are, they're like a pain in the butt. I wish I didn't have to, like I have one at the moment, my, my e-bike that I use for mountain biking at the moment, like gets hammered and the gears are all buggered at the moment and i wish i had an internal hub i don't have an internal hub (laughs) so like i wish there was a solid state bike that i could buy that like didn't have to be maintained that it was just a like hey if there's a problem with it i just send me a note and said hey you 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 know 
there's some issue with it and it needs to be taken in and get serviced. But it's not a manual thing, right? It's not a manual thing where your your gears are clicking or the cogs aren't quite aligned or all these things that like bikes kind of have as step. Everyone has just come to accept it and said like, this is what is usual. Yeah, the the design philosophy of bikes is still very much driven by weight. And so if you look at if you look at almost any e-bike, there have been decisions or and any bicycle in general, there are decisions that were driven by making the bike as light as possible. And I think this is actually something that's holding the industry back in having this focus. And so when you look at weight and weight reduction, people think of sort of adding lightness to the bike. Mm. What what I see is it's just a comes from race cars. It's a Chapman said that once that you should add lightness to the bike or to a vehicle. The, what we see is that you should try and add as many features as possible. And so then we can look at the benefits of it. So with our bike, generally it falls into safety, security, and reliability. So we talked about reliability. Reliability is great, but it doesn't really matter to people when they're shopping. They don't know that there's a problem about it. They're at a bike shop and the bike shop says that they're going to take care of it for you. So this is reliability is something that people end up discovering is important about a bike. Mm -hmm. Safety we see is the big unlock for people who don't ride and want to get into riding. And so the features on our bike are designed to remind people of car features that they're familiar with. And it's in order to make them feel more comfortable that they're almost not riding alone, that the bike will, if you need its help braking, if you need its help, uh, if you want to be alerted that you're going to hit something, that there's a car behind you. Mm. It, it's the, the safety ends up being the first thing that, that frees people into uh, wanting to ride our bike. I just want to ask that one bit about safety. So can you just explain that feature about if you if you're riding along, like what are the safety features? Like how, do, how does that actually show up? I know it has, I know it has like ADAS or like auto braking if you're going to hit something, but like, what are the other things? Yeah. Well, in the, the auto braking is interesting. So we can easily detect using the cameras on the bike that you're going to hit something, but automatically hitting the brakes on a bike turns out to be a pretty bad idea Yeah, because you're unlike a car where you're three or 4% of the weight of the vehicle on the bike, you actually weigh more. You're the main ballistic component of, of a bike going on the bike lane. So what we do is we use all this information we've gotten from the sensors and use that to warn you that something's going to happen. For example, you're going to run into a wall and we detect that you're, or a, a rider that stopped. We'll detect that and we'll warn you. And the way we warn uh, riders is interesting. So if a lot of people ride with AirPods on, we're mm-hmm. actually taking that into account with people riding. That We see AirPods and headphones as being the main way that people will be receive information from the bike in the future. So we'll warn you that by beeping that there, you're about to hit something. But then what happens is if you touch the brakes, we take that as a consent or input that you want to stop. And then we stop you much, much faster. Mm. And how does it work when you say, as you say, because you've got the person is a ballistic, <laughs> you know, like I'm just thinking it's like, oh man, I'm going to get chucked off this bike. It's going to be like a bucking, a bucking Bronco or a, or a horse or something like this. That's going to throw me off. How does that work? Well, so most people, that's what what we noticed with riders that most people don't really understand how braking on a bike works. Mm-hmm. So there, there are two levers, but if you ask someone, they'll they'll get it right about 50% of the time, which one does which. And then if they do know, most people end up braking with only the rear brake, uh, which is not the fastest way to stop a bike. Mm-hmm. But for most people, ends up feeling the safest way. So we took our braking down to one lever only. So when you hit the brakes on our bike, it's actually just a force sensor. We interpret that as you wanting to brake. And then the brake distribution front to rear is something that's constantly decided in software uh, about 500 times a second so that each wheel is stopping as fast as possible. But the the skill is taken out of it of knowing how to modulate your brakes uh, front and rear, which <laughs> is something almost no, uh, most riders can't do. And then certainly new riders have no idea about yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know that, but I have been riding for 25 years. So, um, yeah. It, it's it's interesting with new riders. Usually their confidence uh, outpaces their ability yes. for quite a while. Interesting. So, and take me through that last bit, security. So security, you know, there's, there's other companies that have thought about this with doing theft recovery. Van Moof 
is obviously the best known with doing this. Uh, we are thinking a lot more about software features with the bike that would fall into anti-theft. So if you have no mechanical linkages between the pedals and the wheels, and if you have control over both wheels and the steering, we've built anti-theft features, which are basically the bike not cooperating. So normally you cut a bike lock and then you ride, you ride the victim away. And so our, our bike is designed uh, to be impossible to ride away and then also difficult to carry. And difficult to carry, you can think about the bike shaking a little bit. So like the thing I think of is, because uh, there's a video on you on, on the website for the for this and again, weel.bike forward slash beta is the is the website. But um, is is that as the bike gets picked up, the wheels start to effectively like run forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. And you can, it's it's a, it's a kind of crazy idea, but it's like, yeah, the bike would itself freak out and say, no, you can't, you can't take me. I assume when you say they can't ride away that the, the, you pedal into the generator, but the generator just like, allows you to free, yep. free pedal, right? We, we've thought of all diff- all sorts of different ways to make it very frustrating to to try and steal. Yeah. So, for example, letting somebody roll it a little bit and then f- suddenly locking the wheels. We've taken a lot of inspiration from if you've ever picked up a two year old that doesn't want to be picked up. That's sort of how we <laughs> sort of how we want the bike to feel. We want it to feel not complicit with whatever the person trying to steal is trying to do. And and then since our bike is connected, you know the we we will have theft recovery type features, mm-hmm. but you know, in, in the Western, in Seattle, in the Western U S we're not too excited about the idea of, of theft recovery. Mm-hmm. Preventing the theft seems like the better way to do it. Over time. I think people are just going to get, you know, I had this conversation with Mike Radenbach from red power bikes. Right. And he, and I asked him about the anti, the anti theft thing. He said like, yeah, you know, it's a thing like obviously people care about this stuff, but it's not like a, def- a def- definitive thing that and and um, we're getting better at it. And over time, like we're going to introduce more features about it, but it's not, you know, like at the end of the day, we when it comes down to it, people haven't paid heaps of money, like aren't necessarily willing to pay heaps of money to check their bike. They will with the lock, but they're not like willing to pay like an ongoing service. Yeah. And what when, when it comes to anti-theft, what we imagine is that you'll be able to park our bike outside of a grocery store and run in. Overnight parking is a pretty yeah. difficult thing to do. It's with a bike. It's sort of like you mean you'll be able to park it outside a, a shop without having to go and like lock it. You'll just be able to like walk away and it'll lock and then right. come back and it'll work again. Right, 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 right. We, we and we've considered what it would look like to have overnight parking. It's sort of more difficult. It's like overnight is like trying to park a convertible yes. on the street in the city. We're not sure that it can ever quite be like a car where you know it'll never be messed with yep. or never be yep. stolen. I mean, at the end of the day, I should just be able to like click and this thing should ride itself home though, David, shouldn't it? Open my garage, roll in. <laughs> well, so so our original plan was to do uh, an autonomous bike and then we realized maybe we should have it do other features and then we could sell it. And so we flipped this. This is going more for the Tesla model where we sell a premium e-bike with features that are software defined we'll call it phase two would be doing more sort of cobot type features with the bike and so cobot meaning the bike following you when you go on a run uh, maybe valet type stuff and then long term let's say if somebody manages to do autonomy as a service uh, i can see where there would be a shared service where you could order a bike come out to the bike lane hop on ride it this is sort of the dream of being able to have access to a bike whenever you want it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to be said for the shared model, right? Like I, I ride the shared model a lot um, when I'm in when I'm in a city, especially a city where I don't have access to my own stuff. I'm sunburned today because I, yesterday was such a beautiful day. I insisted on riding across the whole city on a scooter because I because it was like, it's such a nice day. I don't want to be inside in a Uber or in a bus or something like this. I can ride across uh, to get where I want to go and... I think we're going to see more of that, right? Like, so anything that you can come and say, I can deliver and make the economics of it, of, and that is the biggest defining characteristic of a shared system is the getting the bike to the person in the first instance, because it's like, if you have to walk for 10 minutes to go and get a scooter, it's going to be, nobody's going to do, like very few people do it. It's a big drop off at sort of like minute three to five. And so if you can serve service that, then it gets really exciting. Well, and that, and I'm, 
I'm really thankful. I'm really thankful to shared services because for most people, that was the first electric vehicle that uh, probably of any kind that they'll have ridden in. And so, so the boom of e-bikes and scooters really comes down to the, the good VC money that was put into creating all <laughs> these different shared services. I still reminded uh, of the, the, the CEO at the time of Boosted who sort of said to me, he's like, look, if people are going to go and throw the equivalent of smartphones all over the ground. Right. And they you know, and those and people are like, uh, every so often going to pick them up and make a long distance phone call equivalent, you know, like, you know, something that's of value to them, but they're going to pay a small amount. Like, I'm totally fine with that, especially if it means that I can now sell a whole bunch. Yeah, introducing people to this idea of what we have built. But yeah, yeah, cool. Well, look, so where have you got to? So that that's the bike. I, I, I do. I think there's sort of I think we've covered off most of the the elements there's there's obviously the safety security that sort of thing the one thing that i you know the one really cool party trick that it seems to do is that it can wheelie like it can do its own wheelies oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) well so so some of the other features that we built into it uh were, were just ideas that came up so for example stair climbing the bike when you Lots of e-bikes have walk modes, but our walk mode will work going upstairs and it works really well. It's sort of tank crawls mm-hmm. upstairs. And so at some point we joked about the bike doing a wheelie and then we did it. And then we did it with nobody on the bike, um, which is not a particularly useful feature. But the useful feature that did come out of that was what we call elevator mode, where basically the the bike does a wheelie. And then when it's standing up, it ends up turning into sort of like a Segway or a one wheel so that you can move the bike around with it standing on its rear tire. But yes, uh, we might not call it wheelie mode, but <laughs> in elevator mode, if you were to hop on the bike, yes, you could ride it You know, in, in a wheelie pretty well, pretty easily. Yeah, awesome. The other part as well that I, I just want to get to on the bike and then we can move on to the rest of the company is like, so you've built this, um, you built the bike and it looks kind of insane. Like it's a it's brush metal like a very different style of design like it's a very different design language to traditional bikes i've actually interviewed the founder Jonas from still ride and, and i think still ride is sort of another person they're not doing e-bikes they're doing e-mopeds but that idea of metal origami or that there's a different frame systems that we're going to see for, for e-bikes that we're not going to necessarily rely on tubular framing going forward can you talk a little bit about that you know your design choices around that and and then what you're thinking of in terms of construction yeah, so the the design of the bike, the primary motivation with the design was to free people from certain ideas about bikes. So the 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 frame of it looks very different, and so people will approach it differently. You know, with our early prototypes, it very much looked like a modified version of a bike. Which you, if you're going to build an autonomous car, you can do that. You can take a regular car and bolt sensors to it. But there's something about a bike that makes that. Uh, feel like a project and not like a a, a serious uh, product. So it, it also helps us with people. The design of the bike looks really cool, and so people desire it. And then the features that we've built on on in software are sort of ancillary to some people because they just like how the bike looks. The bike looks fast. The bike looks futuristic. Uh, pe- a lot of people described it as a a soft cyber truck, you know, in in the shape of a bike. Yep. But what's really interesting is that. The design of it allows putting electronics in there much more easily. So most bike frames are tubes and then they, the electronics and the batteries are stuffed into the tube. With our bike, we, we left the inner area of the frame much more open because it's all electronics and batteries in there. And so, so that's also how we ended up not having any exposed wiring on the entire bike it all rides uh, in the middle. And so a lot of that was looking towards designing for manufacturing where you're able to build the frame, stuff the frame with electronics and then close it up and not have to insert, for example, the way Van Moof is made, uh, the electronics are inserted from the the rear on there. And we have so much electronics on there that uh, the design allows us to do that more easily. And then we were able to also build the frame ourselves. Yeah, because I was going to ask about that part. The, the the frame design strikes me as, and again, for folks who need to check it out, it's, it's worth going to have a look at this, but it's like, it's, it's square. I mean, it's a square frame box, right? How are you going to do that? 
and I actually kind of want to ask this as, as much as the question is because I also want to understand from where you are in development. Like, when are you planning on shipping bikes? And like, what are you looking right. like for manufacturing? And I take it you're going to be doing uh, small runs of manufacturing next year is my, is my understanding. So how are you going to manufacture those going forward? Yeah, so the uh, the idea actually started similar to uh, Still Ride with doing origami. So the the bike is made of water or laser cut aluminum mm-hmm. and then some CNC parts. You, and then it, it's actually bonded together. At small scale production, it allows us to build it ourselves with, with pretty high quality. Uh, but we're looking at alternative methods similar to Rivet. I don't know if you saw the electric motorcycle from Rivet. They just got twenty million dollars of funding. Yeah, no, I haven't. I, I haven't interviewed them, but I'm going to. They, they, yeah. it sounds like a crazy story. They they did a really good job with with everything. But again, that's sort of taking smaller scale manufacturing practices and you know laser cutting or water jet cutting uh, flat sheets of metal and then bending in, into place. And that yeah. that's where we're headed as well. And I, I don't want to credit Elon too much, but this is really something that came from the Cybertruck of looking at these different ways of designing something and then. Uh, making it at the level of a bike so the what it allows us to do is ship bikes and then iterate more quickly because we control even the frame of that Mm. instead of sending that overseas yeah i mean and and so what's the uh with the bikes that you're looking to manufacture like what's the price point that you're aiming to hit at this point and and for you know and and like what do you think it's in competition with right we we took pre-orders on bikes at seven thousand. pre-orders are closed we we're hoping to uh, ship those uh, this quarter, but we'll probably start shipping them uh, Q1 next mm-hmm. year. The competition part is interesting. So if you have a $2,000 e-bike, it's very clear which bikes you can get that are upgrades on those bikes. But sort yep. of when you get around to the turn territory, yep, you know, a $5,000 turn, if you want to get a bike that is much better. It's hard to look at what you should get. So there are premium brands above there, but you don't start getting features. It's interesting. Uh, premium e-bikes generally are sold in stores and they're not, they're not direct to consumer. And part of the reason we think that is, is that cross shopping features doesn't work very well or, or specs doesn't work very well for premium bikes. So if you look at a recent Mueller, it's hard to tell why it costs $9,000 or a, a Stromer or something similar. When you feel them, they you can definitely tell a difference, but those are those end up not being direct consumer bikes. So we see slotting in somewhere between the turn and then the very premium, very Swiss or German e-bikes. Yeah, interesting. And we'll our our big value to people when they upgrade from bikes uh, will be the the feature list. There's just so many features we have that no one no one has it all unless you're a car company. Yeah, totally. Totally. I can see you being like the eight pod, the eight pod uh, of the bike world, you know, what is it called? Eight pod, sleep pod, whatever the, the name of that, uh, you know, oh, the tech enabled oh, mattress. Right. right, right. Well, and and so when you talk to people and you say five, six, seven, eight thousand dollar e-bike, it sounds crazy to them because they say, well, I can buy a bike at Walmart for one hundred seventy nine dollars. And then you ask them, you go, well, do you own a Dyson? Do you own a Tesla? Mm. Do you, you know, do you, do you have a thousand dollar phone in your pocket? And so I think the challenge for us is to provide the kind of value that is to people that reminds them of more than just a bike, but is more like a car. And in order to do that, the bike needs to look and act and give people the sense of security and safety that a car does. Mm. So it, it you, a, as far as you can go with open air transportation, it should remind you of a car. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. I get that. And and then, you know, can we talk a little bit about your, I mean, you're obviously looking at manufacturing these these bikes, but one of the things that are kind of, it keeps coming, I keep getting uh, kind of questions about is like, well, this feels more like component sets for, for other bike manufacturers to go and integrate. Yep. And I'm curious as to whether or not you would also look at that route to market. Because like, yep. one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about is like there are a lot of, you know, in the in the auto sector, for example, like tier one suppliers are massive. Like they're oftentimes as big as the actual like end consumer game. 
and for a lot of people who are developing cars these days, it's like they just go to their tier one suppliers. Like there, there was that crazy story of like the the Chevy Volt was like sixty <laughs> percent Samsung, you know, or or or, or LG. Or LG. Yeah. I think it was, might have been yeah. LG. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, is there a do you do you see that that would be a a reasonable path to market as well for some of this technology? Yeah, so we we've gotten this a lot of people saying, well, why don't you could just be another Bosch or Shimano or or something like that. Uh, it's an interesting idea. What we're focused on for this next year is showing what does the full realization of a software defined bike look like, and so. To do that, we are vertically integrated in everything that we're doing. And so part of that is that our hardware, software, and firmware are so tightly integrated that if you sold the necessary components for this bike to another manufacturer, I'm, I'm kind of not sure what they're making at that point. So they might be making the frame, but our, our bike is something that's pretty hard right now to imagine white labeling. Mm. I'm... I'm sure there are more BD people in my future who will, you know, in, insist on us considering generally those types of things. Yeah. I mean, I love it. With a lot of those other things, like, for example, the motors, are you building those motors yourself? Or, like, what is the kind of unique tech that you guys have built and how much of this is, like, you just assembling a whole bunch of new other parts together in a kind of quite unique way? Yeah, yeah. If you have a keen eye, you might recognize the motors that we've used on our early bikes. Uh Inside those motors, they're made in Canada. Inside those motors, it's all custom, and so and that that's with the two wheel motors. But if you or the the hub motors on mm-hmm. the bike, but if our pedal motor, steering motor, all of our electronics, motor controllers, firmware, the app, uh, we all built ourselves. Yeah, wow. And that was really out of that was really out of necessity. I mean, we we've sort of rewritten the story about vertical integration as we realized that that was the only path. Ford that made sense for building the entire bike. If you were to adapt a bike to be like this, it, it sort of reminds me of the uh, Tesla versus the, uh, what was the name of the car company? Car- or they still exist. They exist again. Karma? Karmic. Oh, no, no, um, that's the bike company. Yeah, um, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, it is Karma. It's Karma, Karma Motors. And then there's, it's Henrik Fisker. Oh, Fisker. Fisker. That's it. Yes. Right. Yeah. So th- this reminds me of Fisker in that, they said, we're going to make an electric car. That's going to look good. We're also going to put a General Motors four-cylinder engine in the front. And so they ended up sort of with the worst of both worlds all at the same. Well, they had lots of problems, but it did not end up at summing to more than one. And so... Yes, that's true. I mean, I think the biggest problem that they had was that Justin Bieber bought one of them. And so they were sort of... Pepping. Well, yeah, and the bunch burned down and what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. How are you thinking about the battery side of things? Because this is this is one of the things that, you know, like, so Josh, Josh, on kind of, he was so adamant about this. He's like, I don't want to build my own stuff because he's like, you know, there's there's nobody crazy enough to do this. And and it was why, yeah. part of the reason I love you, David, is because you are crazy enough to go and do this yourself. <laughs> uh, but, you know, things like batteries and battery protections and making sure that the batteries don't light on fire and all that sort of stuff. Is there, is there stuff that you can buy or, or get these days so you know that that stuff's all taken care of from a safety perspective? Yeah, so so we're using off-the-shelf uh, battery cells. So the cells would be the individual, you know, cylindrical little cells from yep. from Samsung or LG. Uh, the battery packs we are building, and and that that comes down to the re- requirements for the bike, and then also what we've observed in other e-bike makers and scooter makers. You know, probably it's it's hard to point at a lot of companies that have done this well. So Boosted did this with their Rev. Their battery pack was really impressive. Yep. And it gave them a bunch of performance uh, benefits. For example, their regen on all the boosted products is was is still unmatched mm-hmm. by anyone else and how how good it was. So we're we're building the our our own battery packs. Uh that's to accomplish to uh, to accomplish really good regen and then a form of fast charging. So our a big dream that I have is to be able to charge a bike in a way where if I don't have enough battery, I can go somewhere and fast charge. The timing of this is good because we're seeing the popularity of e-bikes blow up so much that we're also seeing battery fires and low quality batteries. So you can go to an existing, you know, tier one, well, Bosch or Shimano to get a battery, but they don't really meet our needs. 
Something else we see with batteries is that if you want good battery life, you're looking at minimizing the number of charging cycles. And the best way to do that is to have a really big battery. And so our battery is one kilowatt hour, and that's something that's much larger than you're going to see. in One kilowatt hour. That's mad. It's a round number. What What is the... <laughs> it is. What's the range in theory on that for the bike then? So I'm, I'm 6'4", 100 kgs. I, yep. My range is not very good. So we've thought about this a lot, especially with the messaging. So to, to answer, 30 to 50 miles should yep. be pretty reasonable, but it's going to t- depend a lot on how you ride. So the bike, along with the app, which, which work together, what we see our customers doing is entering in their destination into the app. Mm-hmm. And then the bike dynamically changing acceleration curves, top speed, power limits, uh, other settings where we can optimize the range. And so our hypermiler mode, when we have it on, when you have it turned on in the app can sometimes double the range, especially for a larger rider like me, Mm. you know, getting 60 miles, uh, of range out of it. What we would like is eventually that people know that they'll get there. Yes. With the range. And so the bike will adjust. What's really cool is the regen optimizing, with that mode on because given the weight of the rider which we know at all times because we're we're sensing how much power is going to the bike and how it accelerates uh with the weight of weight of the rider there's actually an optimum speed to go down hills for a regen and so in that mode you can the bike actually becomes a little sticky at that speed so it's almost like it goes into cruise control when going down a hill Mm. and that's just to maximize the amount of regen What's funny though, uh, all of that what I'm that I'm saying is we make the bike go slower, which is true. Yes. So generally, you're you're removing a lead foot. What's pretty cool though is if you have hands free mode on the bike, suddenly going slower doesn't matter as much. So, for example, I ride on a bike trail around here, and the speed limit is 15, 15 miles an hour. Very reasonable but kind of painful when you're on an American e-bike that can go 28 miles an hour, but in hands-free mode, suddenly going, you know, at a reasonable speed is something that you kind of enjoy. It's sort of a respite from the rest of your ride. And Mm. then if you do what we don't recommend, which is to pick up your phone and look at something or look around uh, all the better. Hop on JTPT. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And so I guess the part that I have is like, I want, I mean, I've, I've got a pre-order, so I'm, I'm obviously, I'm very excited about this. Do you think that there will be any scale to, because $7,000, you know, it's funny, actually $7,000 doesn't feel that expensive for a bike. You know, I, that's what I, that's a, close to what I spent on my e-mountain bike. And there is a whole bunch of folks who, for whom like 10 grand on a bike is pretty reasonable. Like, no, it's not, it's not crazy. Let's put it that way. Who are the folks who you think are going to be buying these? So our, our early adopters are pretty easy, right? It tends to be male, 30 to 50, disposable income, a Tesla, yeah. uh, several cars, several e-bikes. They definitely have AirPods, Macs. I mean, it, it, it's somebody that buys toys, basically. Yeah. So we see those uh, as our early adopters. And then sort of the Trojan horse of all of this is what happens with the safety. And so what we're really seeing is that people who see a benefit of safety want the bike too. And so I'm what we look forward to is our early adopters sharing the bike. So a lot of the autonomy, hands-free, the wheelie, all these different tricks that the bike does, this is all going to be part of our marketing plan, Mm. which is YouTubers and our customers will share the bike. And this is going back to Tesla. Yeah, totally. Make cool features, get YouTubes done, and then people want it. It's funny you say that thing about the wheelie and that that's a useless feature. Do you, okay, so can I tell you the funniest feature that I have on my Tesla is the light show. Yeah. <laughs> which is the, yeah. <laughs> which in the fart mode, which is again, like, you know, yeah. you can make it fart every time you turn on the director, like the direction indicator. And it's like a totally dumb feature, but it's hilarious. And, and it's the same with. I kind of, I guess the the same way I imagine with a wheelie, which is like, it's a totally useless feature, but it's like, does your bike do a wheelie by itself? No, I didn't think so. You know? And yeah, and the, uh, the, it, it's hard not to love a vehicle or any product that gets better over time. 
yeah. with software updates. Yeah. And that's that's really that's going to be what differentiates our bike is what what I really want to have happen is somebody tweets at me a feature and then we implement it in the next week and then we ship it out. That's that's the sort of product development cycle that I really want to see. Yeah. Um and then if we become if people see that our bike is meaningfully safer and then let's say you're a parent or you're a company shopping for bikes for your employees, a pretty natural question is going to be which bike is the best or which bike is the safest. Mm. And so that safety ends up being, uh, if you've ever, if you ever talked to a parent, it's really easy to sell a parent on something being safer. Any, yes. any sort of product is being 100%, the safest. hundred percent. And I take it because like, you know, you've got your bike designed as it is at the moment, which is sort of like, it looks like one of those juiced bikes, you know, a, a kind of a more modern Cybertruck version of that. But you could in theory. Yeah, very very American style. Yeah, a very American style. But I could totally see that being adopted, you know, okay, so your frame design and the way you're doing your frames, they're, they're bonded and all that sort of stuff. Very interesting, by the way. I didn't even go into that, but like, I just think that's fascinating. But you could totally adopt that. To, you could you could make a cargo bike version of this. You could yep. make a whole bunch of different versions of this as well, which I can totally see. And we're we're very excited about the prospect of making a cargo bike. Yeah. The yep. the the applications of all this to cargo, especially. So I've talked to people who have balancing problems where the balance assist, not just the hands free, but the the balance assist when you're riding the bike and your hands are on the handlebars. They want that for themselves. And and basically what we're doing is making it so that there's less skill involved with carrying the weight that you have. And it doesn't just apply to people with different abilities. It also applies to if you're carrying a load. So if you've ridden a cargo bike, especially one of the front load cargo bikes with another human on there, it's very difficult to balance the bike. And so there's some, there's a lot of trickery there that we see doing with, you know, if we remove even if we go one step further with this and maybe the steering is done in software as well, where there's no mechanical linkage, mm -hmm. I I'm very excited about the future of what that looks like. And really this is making it so that my goal is that you want the most car like vehicle in features that still feels and looks like a bike and belongs in the bike lane. Mm, fair. Totally. When I've gone back to the early days, right, of just what 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 do you get when you start building a bike that's smartphone on wheels is exactly this. And I think that the, the question has always been, well, what is it? Where is the infrastructure? Where is the infrastructure is going to end up in? Because I, I and I think you know, there's vehicles like the Nimbus or the Lip Motors or the uh, or the City Transformer or um, any of these other sort of like slightly larger uh, micro mobility vehicles that you can see emerging which are just going to be, you know, it's like obvious they have to go on the road. You can't put those things in bike lanes. Right. But there is so much capability that you could, in theory, pack into a vehicle. And what what are you going to want in the bike lane, I think, is in, in something that is totally compliant and, and fits in there and all that sort of stuff. I think it's just a, a challenge. I, th I think the biggest challenge is going to be for governments and regulators of like, what are you going to do if all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of these new vehicles coming and a bunch of them want to be in these things? I think that's what where the EU is right is at right now in terms of its discussions around what what the bike lanes are going to be filled with. And I was actually just talking recently to the um, head of Amazon's micromobility unit in Europe, and they're like just right on the very cutting edge of what those standards are going to be like and what the vehicle form factor will actually end up looking like as well and what features will be in that. Yeah. And it's a funny thing. The, if you go to a fighter, I, I like talking about fighter jets. I mean, our bike with software, we take a bike that can be more nimble and then have it also uh, be more stable. This is what fighter jets do. The F-16 did this. Mm. Um, but in development of the F-22, <laughs> This is terrible for a micro-mobility podcast, but I'm going to go for it anyway. With the F-22, they were competing against Boeing, and the thing with the Boeing uh, fighter jet was that it didn't look right. It didn't look like a fighter jet. And I think this is a big part of keeping uh, vehicles in the bike lane is that they, they have to look like bikes. They have mm. to look and feel like bikes. And so when you uh, – an electric unicycle might be a perfectly reasonable vehicle, but it's not – for some reason, people to feel like they shouldn't be in bike lanes, uh, you know, aside from power and all that. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. preserving bikiness, especially in Europe, 
and then uh, as bikes become more popular here, it seems to be bikiness. very important. Yeah, yeah, bikiness. Bike, yeah, bikiness yeah. is a very relevant. Yeah, it's, and it's also a, a relative term, right? I think this is exactly what Horace yeah. and I have talked about early on. Hey, so finally, we we need to wrap up, but I wanted to under like so you guys obviously got some funding in 2019 and. That was uh, from from actually that was the very first investment that the micromobility syndicate first and I think only investment that the micromobility <laughs> syndicate made. But I'm curious, like what the journey has been like. Where have you? Where else have you got funding from? Who who's found this interesting? And and where have you? Uh, where 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 do you think you'll go to next? Yeah, so our our largest investor is is actually Amazon. I mean, it helps that we're up here in Seattle. We, we've in, we've enjoyed them a lot. Their interest in this is not in delivery. Although Amazon is working on that separately, mm. they see this as a connected fitness device. Yeah, interesting. The the bike as it sits does not look like it's very much made for people who ride Pelotons or road bikes or wear spandex. Mm-hmm. I'm actually pretty excited about that part in the future. You know, if you think about it, if you're pedaling into a generator and then we generate force feedback, that's a heck of a lot like a Peloton. And so different shapes of bikes in the future I see as being you know, tracking how many calories you do, tuning your ride for fitness. So for example, maybe you want to have a constant heart rate on a ride, mm. but you don't want your speed and your effort to be coupled together. Again, these will just end up being software features that we build on top. The The heart rate, you know, looking at your Apple watch and then setting the resistance, that's something I'm really excited about to be able to have the option of getting a workout on a ride, but not mm. having it dependent on hills or gears or traffic conditions or anything like that. Awesome. Any other investors that are of note that you can talk about? Ryan Graves at Saltwater. Mm-hmm. Put in a check. Former COO of, uh, of Uber. Yep. 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 Founders Funds, uh, Pathfinder Fund with Scott Nolan. Yeah. The Bragel Brothers as well. Uh, shout out to Dan. He's ridden across the US on a bike. Yep. <laughs> Love it. And is there, so, I mean, you're, you're looking at ramping up for manufacturing. Are you fundraising actively at the moment? Not actively. We'll do that this next year. We, we are working on some partnerships for manufacturing and then funding along those lines. 2023, we're going to be shipping out our first bikes. And then 2024, we're really looking at how how can we build as many of these bikes as possible and yep. ship to as many people as possible? Beautiful. 2024 will be a good year. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well because I'm also I'm waiting for my bike down in New Zealand and uh, planning to. I need to check the laws down there yeah. next time. <laughs> next time I come down, I don't remember what the e-bike laws are. I'll, I'll send you a separate bill for shipping as well. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I'm happy to happy to pay it. But um, yeah. Hey, look, this has been super fun. I. For folks who do want to track you down, you are Boxcar David on Twitter, and David is quite active and great fun. Is there any like anything else that you you want to share, given that you're you've got the audience at this stage? No, I don't think so. Awesome. Well, um, hey, absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, to finally get a chance to do this interview. I've been wanting to do this for a really long time. I just think what you're doing is. Super interesting. Like there is, as I said, there is nobody else trying to do as as crazy as you. And and I, I love that David sent me this beautiful scene from Gattaca, um, when I said, you know, you're 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 really crazy. And there's this movie called Gattaca with um, what's the name of the guy? Crazy guy, the uh, um, yeah, um, the actor Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Yeah, and it's uh, and him and his brother and they're swimming out, and and he's just like, you know, I'm too. I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming. And they're playing a game of chicken to see how far they can swim out. And, and Ethan turns around and his brother says, you know, like, what do you ever save enough for the, for the, for the, for the swim back? Uh, how, how have you done this? And he yeah. said, I never saved anything for the swim back. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I think there's some more symbolism there because I believe they're leaving San Francisco. Yeah. As they're swimming across the bay there. Oh, interesting. Okay. I did. I missed that part in the, in the clip, but I, but I do love it. I mean, I just, I think one of the things that I, I love that we do at Micromobility Industries and we really try and champion the founders and the people who are crazy enough to go like, hey, what would we, what would this look like if this that was completely mad and new and different? And let's try and do something that's not just a kind of a repeat of the same thing that everybody else has done. And so I just, I want to, you know, I want to say it again, hats off to you because I, I know that it's, it's, it's a scary and terrifying thing to sometimes be like way out in the wilderness. I, I really admire the founders who have been shipping products. You know, we're trying to go for a step change in these vehicles, but the improvements that have been made on bikes in just the past two or three years are amazing. And 
you know, those are the bikes that I've been riding every day. So I hats off to people who ship as well. Yes, totally. Well, you will be one of them as of next year. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, bringing you on uh, at some point in the future as well. So we can talk a little bit more about where you've got to. So when you unveil your new cargo bike, let's do that. It'll be a good one. Yeah. Uh, September next year, isn't it? Okay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, that's when the Micromobility America conference is. David would be stoked. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll try it. We'll see if they can coincide. Yeah. Marvelous. Okay. Well, hey, thank you. And uh, looking forward to, to, to future conversations. Cool. Thanks.